Oh my goodness, it has been another <laughs> topsy trivia week in the news this week. Some big stories, some middling ones too of interest, and we want to talk about the ones that really matter with our powerhouse roundtable. And as always, we have a great roundtable for you, so let's get to some introductions first. Mark Caputo reports for Politico. He is covering the 2020 presidential race with a special emphasis on Florida. Raquel Rodriguez, Rocky to We Are Friends, is a veteran government relations attorney with McDonald Hopkins and was general counsel to former Governor Jeb Bush. Melba Pearson is the deputy director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Florida and a former prosecutor with the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office. Welcome. Good great, morning. To have, great to have you all <laughs> yeah. here. So uh, let me begin with a question for my friend and colleague, Glenna Milberg. Glenna just came back from six <laughs> days in Israel and uh, with Governor DeSantis. Uh, and a what, cast of thousands. And a and hundred <laughs> Floridians who yeah. went with him. What did it accomplish? Um, you know, this was a trade mission, as you all know. I mean, it's been in the news a lot. I think we're all pretty familiar with the, the purpose of it was trade and development, but it was much more wide-ranging than that. There were a lot of partnerships formed with NGOs, with universities, and um, and it was a bipartisan effort. One of my biggest takeaways, I think, was how nice it was to be among Florida's leadership and movers and shakers and on a very bipartisan, unified effort for good. was kind of my takeaway. And um, Rocky, I know we were, we were kind of talking about there are so many aspects to this. And, and the governor said this was not a political trip, but it kind of was under the surface a political trip, was it not? Well, I think I've, I've mentioned before that everything an elected official does mm -hmm. at some level has a, a political uh, goal or a tone to it. But I think it was a very substantive trade mission I was following it closely and by the way great reporting oh, uh, thank from you, you thank on you it much. and uh, there were 20 MOUs that were signed between uh, major Israeli agencies mm -hmm. and universities that would and be state a universities me and memorandum of understanding memorandum for non-lawyers yes. I, I call them partnerships <laughs> partnership, partnership agreements yeah. and, and they are and those are things that uh, other Florida governors have worked on uh, over the years but I think this is probably uh, the most extensive and uh, and uh, really meaningful number of uh, partnership agreements that have been done between uh, agencies in Florida and the state. You know, we were just seeing video of the cabinet meeting that was, was there. That was kind of the most controversial part, at least in pre preceding the trip, because people were thinking, Melba, the, there was a cabinet meeting. This is supposed to be open government. How are we going to watch? How are we going to get there? Uh, it ended up being, you know, a subject of a lawsuit by the First right. uh, First Amendment Foundation that went nowhere because they couldn't serve the governor and the cabinet there because they were in foreign territory. But anyway, Smallish, this, yeah. this cabinet meeting was kind of <coughs> ceremonial. There was no business. Was, was that a, you know, in concept, it was a very big deal. In practice, mm -hmm. was it? So, I mean, it, it, it's a matter of the precedent, right? Because the Sunshine Law, which is governed by uh, Chapter 286 of the Florida Statutes, requires that all of government proceedings be held in the sunshine and that Floridians have access and are able to be heard. So if the people of, the Flor of Florida are here, I'm not quite sure why you're conducting the business of the people of Florida in Israel. Uh, I understand there was a live stream or something along those lines yeah. that was supposed to make it accessible, but at the same token, 
what's truly open to the public. Because now, if a Floridian wanted to attend a cabinet meeting and actually see firsthand what happened, you'd have to, you know, drop a thousand dollars for a flight on El Al or whoever to be able to get there, and that's making it inaccessible for the people. So I think it sets a bad precedent. Weigh in on this, Mr. Well, I've been Pulido. to the cabinet meetings, uh, having lived in Tallahassee for eight years and covered it uh, longer. No one shows. No one really cares what happens there except <laughs> until they can't go. You, the, the you always want what you can't have. Uh, for me, what's more interesting about the trip and Florida's increasing uh, connection to Israel is the political one. Bibi Netanyahu now has his own problems. The, the head of Israel has, uh, has essentially been, in the eyes of most Democrats and most Jewish people, essentially uh, an agent of the Republican Party. And the connection between uh, the conservatives in Israel and the conservatives in the United States and in Florida is very close. Meanwhile, the Democratic Party has a schism in it because there is a, there are a significant number of at least loud voices who don't like Israel's policies and treatment toward Palestinians. And you started to see this boil up a little with Representative Ilhan Omar and some of her remarks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you saw a further splitting when the Democratic presidential candidates and then the U.S. House took up the issue of anti-Semitism. You saw this divide in the Democratic caucus and the Democratic Party. Uh, what the Republicans have the luxury of is they know what they want. The Republicans are basically totally united in being close to Israel and being a solid, no apologies, no questions asked ally. Well, there are, let's point out, roughly 650 to 700,000 Jews who live in the state of Florida and most of them in South Florida. They are very politically engaged and I'm sure the governor is thinking about 2020, thinking Rocky, uh, about you know his friend Donald Trump, uh, who got a lot of those votes uh, in 2016, but who really needs more of those votes to win Florida in 2020. Yeah, and I you know I think it's a long time before the general election in 2020, and a lot can happen. And I don't know that it will translate 100% to President Trump's reelection. Uh, you had the situation with. Uh, 2008 and 2012 uh, versus Barack Obama, uh, particularly in 2012 with Mitt Romney. And I don't think it really translated to a lot of Jewish votes for Mitt Romney. That's, that's true. You, however, you did see in the 2018 race for governor in some predominantly Jewish precincts in South Florida, Andrew Gillum did a lot worse than Bill Nelson mm -hmm. against Ron DeSantis. Mm -hmm. well, what do you make of that? What does that mean? Well, uh, that I don't know. But what I do know is also the polling currently shows that uh, Jewish uh, Americans heavily dislike Donald Trump. But having a pro-Israel... Unless they're Republican. This is true. Uh, but I said heavily, not completely. Uh, <laughs> Jewish voters, while they by and large feel that way, uh, the Republicans kind of know that there's only so many inroads they're going to make here. This is a great way to turn on their base. The evangelical base wants the most pro-Israel standpoint possible. So it's not just about Jewish voters. It's also about the base. I, of the I would say Jew party. the Jewish vote is not a monolithic vote, and it's not right. a it's not a one a one topic one Israel vote. I mean, education, immigration, all of the things that are important to but it's all voters. There's a strong yeah. social heavily. justice yeah. current strong social in, justice in the Jewish right, community right. that yes. dates back decades and yeah. civil liberties as well. And I think that, Abortion. as you pointed out, um, 
it's not a monolithic vote, and, and we nobody should be treated as, as a monolithic vote. And this yeah. may not even be about necessarily our, our current president. This could be maybe he's playing the long game for his own future. Uh, you, you saw that uh, when uh, Rick Scott was governor, he traveled to Israel, I think, three or f three times, you know, along those lines, and then he ran for Senate. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe he's using a playbook to kind of... Play the long well, game, possibly. Who knows? All right, so hold your thoughts, everybody. We're going to take a quick break. and back with more Roundtable in just a minute. Welcome back. We are in the midst of the Roundtable. Oh, I wish you could be listening in while <laughs> we have commercial breaks. It's, oh, it's pretty darn know. good. <laughs> if we can, let's move on here at least briefly to... Uh, hurricane season and what uh, Congresswoman Frederica Wilson was saying uh, about uh, preparations in these nursing homes. I mean, I find it astounding, Melba, 247 licensed nursing homes in Florida two years after Irma still have not installed backup generators. I mean, how do they get away with this? I mean, it's completely unacceptable. I'm going to quote my dad here, prevention is better than cure. So rather than have another situation, we know another hurricane is going to come. It's, it's not a question of if, it's yes. a matter of when. Yes. So we have the technology available. You know, the, the funds are there. If it's a matter of there's not enough money for some reason, then go back to the legislature and be like, look, we need more funds to be able to keep people safe. Right. But these are our most vulnerable citizens, our, our most vulnerable people. Every effort should be taken to make sure that Absolutely. they're safe. You know, we're focused on hurricanes because what happened at the Hollywood nursing home was because of a hurricane, but when power fails for yeah. any reason in the mm -hmm. summer in this community, I mean, the temperatures in any building, Rocky, mm -hmm. waivers upon waivers that are allowing these facilities to push back getting the generators, and it's a financial concern. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, parenting 101, the consequence belongs to the person whose behavior needs to change. I mean, mm -hmm. does that pave the way for sort of an irresponsible path? Well, I have been giving a lot of thought to it. I, I don't think that they're granting waivers just on the say-so of the nursing home. I think that they're looking to see what efforts have been made. But look at the consequences. If you shut down 275 nursing homes mm -hmm. tomorrow, where do you put the residents? Right. And there's, it's more than just dollars to buy for a generator. Some of these nursing homes are very large. What kind of generators do you need? Who's going to install them? Do they have the electrical components that can withstand right. uh, all of that? So, um, and everyone focuses on the generator, but as I understand the governor's order and the legislation, there's also, you have to have a plan uh, which includes resettling the residents under the circumstances. And my guess is that the Department of Emergency Management and the governor's office are probably working hard to make, to make sure that they immediately focus on the nursing homes in affected areas and work with them closely to make sure that there's not a repeat of what happened in the Hollywood nursing home. So uh, yeah, we want the generators, but you know there are realities that we have to deal with right. as well. You know, there is a corollary to the nursing home story in the front page of this morning's Miami Herald, I'm sure you saw it, all of you, uh, that the detention center for migrant kids down in Homestead, according to Representative Debbie Mooker Salpal, they don't have an evacuation order. So you got 3,000 kids down there. You've been there, Glenna, uh, seen it firsthand. They, according to the Congresswoman, they don't know what's going to happen, where they would move them out if, in fact, a hurricane approached. And of course, as we all know, 
1982, Homestead was the epicenter of Hurricane Andrew. Hey, I'm so, astounded the Department of Homeland Security is screwing up immigration, right? <laughs> and it's the same agency that, that, that has just, just consistently done a horrible job mm -hmm. from its zero tolerance policy, which incidentally led to the, the detaining, the caging of minors. Right. So th they seem to only want to stack bodies in facilities, or in some cases in tents, and not worry about the rest of the consequences of their policy. But a similar issue outside of evacuation, because I've been to that detention facility, it's pretty well built. It'll probably withstand a hurricane. Maybe it'll lose a little bit of roof. But what's going to happen when the power goes out? Do they have generators right. there? Well, we don't yeah. know. Right. And they also want to expand it. And then on a related note, it is interesting that the former chief of staff of the president, who John used to head Kelly. home, John right. Kelly, used to head Homeland Security. Well, he just happened to be working for this private uh, firm now. Imagine that. Yeah. What a coincidence. We, we were wondering, why we, saw him, we were wondering why we saw him on a golf court there uh, in April, and, and then he joined the board of Caliburn. Um, I, just to answer your question, I do think they have generators there. Mm -hmm. I did see generators um, to power what is already there now. But uh, to your point, we don't know. And, and it doesn't seem like, Melba, the Department of Homeland Security and HHS, which runs that shelter, doesn't answer many questions. No, they do not. So we, we actually don't know if they have a plan just because they no. don't say. Right. Yeah. And it's that lack of transparency that's incredibly problematic, especially when you're dealing with kids and a situation that is, number one, inhumane because we've separated, the government has separated these children from their families with no plan for reuniting them. They were told by the courts that they needed to, okay, you need to start figuring out how to reunite these kids. And they're like, well, we, we don't know. So already there's just been this pattern of malfeasance and a lack of accountability, and it has to stop. The kids that are at the homestead shelter mm -hmm. are the ones who come unaccompanied. Mm -hmm. they, they may have been separated from relatives that they came with, but they left of their own accord, in homestead anyway, is, is the population there. 3,000 of them now. But at the same token, if they still have relatives here yeah, in, in, in South Florida, then they should be with them pending the outcome of whatever their right. asylum claim may be. Well, but they are. I think that every week they move at least a couple of hundred of those they kids do. out to other settings. But then they get kids coming in at the same time. So you still have 3,000 kids, 13 to 17, who are in that facility, and they are not transparent in the way they run it. And are they getting education? Are they getting adequate medical care? Are they getting anything to address the, any uh, mental health services to address the trauma of being, right. you know, separated from family in an unknown setting? You know, they're, they're not allowed to be, you know, to act like children, to, to, to live a normal life. I think it's important to broaden the conversation a bit is we're currently the crush of migrants at the border are from the Northern Triangle countries. Right. Honduras' as president was just uh, named in a federal criminal indictment as being part of a, a drug scheme. Uh, there are serious problems in those, those countries and, and maybe the best way to help slow down the migration crisis, which this is by and large a result of, is to try to help fix those countries. I don't know what the solution is, but we yeah. should at least mention well, it. Well, we also cause a, a problem too. Well, <laughs> it's, it's a challenge. <laughs> you know, when you're sending uh, aid to these countries, if you don't have the right institutions and right. rule of law, right. it's gonna go into somebody's bank account. Or yeah. keep yeah. trying to overthrow governments. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we are going to take one more break. We've got more to talk about with the round table, so stick with us. 
We are in the midst of a really good roundtable here with some terrific uh, participants, uh, roundtablers, Mark Caputo of Political, Melba Pearson from the ACLU, Rocky Rodriguez, all around Political Pro. Rocky, let me begin. Let's move, if we can, to Miami-Dade College, looking for a new president to succeed. Uh, a friend of mine, I happen to have high regard for Eduardo Padron, the president for the last 25 years, so the board of trustees has four new trustees appointed by Governor DeSantis. They met this week, and suddenly they're talking about lowering the requirement for the new president from a doctorate, a PhD, or a JD, to simply having a, a master's degree. Faculty doesn't like it, and it barely was defeated on a four to three vote, but what's going on here? Well, I think that um, Mike Balecka, who's a former state legislator and he's been involved in education issues for a long time, wanted to broaden the pool of potential candidates that could include, for example, entrepreneurs that have a master's of business administration, right. which is a serious degree. Um, but, you know, I think aside from that, there was the issue of requiring the current requirement of having six years in academia. And I would like to. Administrative experience. Yeah, I would like to recall three major impactful university presidents that ha were not uh, academic administrators. Uh, one was the uh, the now late Sandy Dallenberg, president yes. of Florida State University. Right. Uh, now John Thrasher, pre also president, now president of Florida State University. Frank Brogan, president of Florida Atlantic University. Right. I mean, I think all three men, I think we would agree, were outstanding university presidents. And um, I think to put an artificial barrier on somebody who could be a great leader and a transformative uh, agent in, in what's a really a fine college now, thanks to Dr. Padron, is um, artificially depressing the pool of potentially qualified candidates. So the, the firm that's looking for candidates has a pool of 40-something, 40 42 or 3, and the and say, the firm principals say, the pool is a very good one. That's a, that's a lot of people. Right, that's right. Is, that, is this, this is a way to, to broaden it. But there's also been word in Miami that one of the reasons that they want to broaden it is so that one of Mike Baleka's former colleagues yeah. in the Florida House could possibly have the job. Right. So I think both arguments are true. But I believe on this show, I had said that John Thrasher bleeds garnet and gold when he was appointed as the head of FSU. The reality is, is Man by nature is a political animal, at least I discovered that or read that when I was in college. And uh, this is a job that takes a good administrator and a good leader. And I think you're probably right that why do you need a PhD to show that you can be a leader? Well, the, the academics, the faculty at Miami-Dade, they believe that they, I mean, because they have a PhD. dean of a school, the dean of every school, dean of every school there needs a phd to be a dean of a school i want to play a soundbite from the meeting on thursday this is uh miami attorney marcel felipe who is one of the new trustees here is a little give and take uh with mr felipe the board's job is to search for that president is to make that determination and it's not something that we can delegate to anyone it's our responsibility so i would definitely disagree <clears throat> with whoever said that we were lowering the bar or lowering the standards. I think we're raising them because that's the standards that have been set. Excuse me. Again, you're making my point by trying to stifle the voice of someone who disagrees with you. 
Well, it got rough crowd. Kafka-esque, that guy. Come on. Orwellian, I should say. It got pretty contentious down there, and I don't want to read too much into (laughs) what Mr. Felipe said, but he and these other new trustees seem to be sort of saying, well, you know, this college, it's done some good work, but you got all these liberals, you don't really want to broaden your view, and you don't want to let sort of a wider you know, you don't want business people to come in and run the school. But I think also common sense has to prevail somewhere in this, right? I mean, you want somebody who actually has experience doing the job. And if you've been in academia for six years, you know what's very unique to that environment. You don't necessarily, I mean, I know this is a new trend. Oh, business people can fix everything. Okay, business people are really cool. Don't get me wrong. But at the same token, they're not exactly qualified in every single thing. You can't have a business person doing brain surgery, right? Like, (laughs) And we also should point out Miami-Dade College has eight campuses, I think 160,000 students. I mean, it is the, one of the, if not the largest college in the United States. It's a really an amazing place. Well, they're going to be raising the standards by lowering them, according to this crazy <laughs> quote you just played. Yeah. Let me go back. Yeah. Wait a second. What's wrong with a business person running a business? When you surround yourself with the kind of people who have been in academia to sort of direct you in that respect. What's wrong with it? Yeah, it it just doesn't feel right to me. Just from the standpoint of if, if it was me applying to college today, right, I want to know that there's somebody who has a vision, who understands the unique needs of various students, who knows, like, you know, can look at different types of teachers or knows where to recruit and get, you know, the best talent. You know, there, there's so many students at Miami-Dade College, predominantly black and brown students, mm-hmm. and they deserve a leader who understands academia and has the vision to take this college to the next level for the next 50 years the same way Dr. Padron has done. And I don't think necessarily that a business person is qualified for that. Well, On we will note. find out because by July they're going to name a new president will find out whether he or she has a PhD or simply an MBA. Thanks everybody. Great round table. Thank you. Great to have you here. Up next, among the many takeaways from Florida's mission to Israel, the culture of protecting people from violence. Can that translate here?